You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to an ex-grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a minute to remind you that I have a new show called Somewhere Sinister. Each season, we pick a location and tell sinister stories from that area. Right now, we're working our way through the Pacific Northwest, and we've done stories about a failed train robbery in Oregon, some mysterious feet washing up on the shores of the Salish Sea, and a group of lions on the loose in Idaho. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts by searching Somewhere Sinister. Thanks. The Jersey Shore, not just a terrible reality show on MTV, but a popular vacation destination for people who want some fun in the sun. It has the highest concentration of oceanside boardwalks in the United States and is famous for its many amusement parks, arcades, and water parks. Most notable amongst the towns of the shore is Asbury Park, the home of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He could be seen performing places like Asbury Lanes and the Stone Pony. In 1972, he released the album titled Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Richard Biegenwald had an evil side to him since he was a child. When he would get angry, he would need a rush in order to cool himself off. A thrill that would continually get more and more dangerous until the only thing that would give him kicks was murder. This is Monsters. Bayonne, New Jersey is a little peninsula pushed between Newark, New Jersey and Staten Island, New York. On December 18, 1958, 47-year-old Stephen Slidowski woke up like it was any other day. Stephen was a married father of four with two daughters, 19-year-old Estelle and 14-year-old Catherine, and two sons, 11-year-old Stephen Jr. and 9-year-old Robert. They lived in a quaint little area right next to the Bayonne Park, which is a 100-acre park that has basketball courts, baseball fields, soccer fields, various paths, and a kid's playground. Just a half a block down the street from his house was a local grocery store that he owned. Stephen was a staple of the community, having grown up in Bayonne. His parents, Frank and Bessie, immigrated to the United States from Poland and owned their own grocery store in Bayonne when Stephen was growing up. He didn't follow in his parents' footsteps initially, though. After graduating high school and completing his undergraduate work from Fordham University in New York City, he got a law degree from the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. 
He worked as a lawyer for 20 years in New York before buying the store, just down the block on Avenue B. He would wake up early, get the store ready, before his wife, Estelle, yes, their oldest daughter was also named Estelle, would come run the store while he continued working as a lawyer. It was a pretty busy time of year being exactly one week away from Christmas. People were rushing to buy presents, decorations, and the food they would serve at their various holiday parties and family get-togethers. The store was doing well, and when Stephen finished his work in the city, he came back and helped close the store. Richard Begenwald had just returned to Staten Island from Kentucky, where he had just been released from a juvenile reform center. He spent the year locked up for stealing a car in Nashville and driving it across state lines into Kentucky. Once released, he returned to his hometown, but he wasn't what you would consider reformed. Richard was the type of person who continued to push the limits in order to get a thrill. Born on August 24, 1940, to Albert and Sally Beganwald, Richard grew up in Staten Island, New York. His parents started noticing strange behavior from their son at a young age, but didn't know exactly what to do about it. Albert started drinking and became physically abusive to the boy. When Richard was five years old, he tried to set the house on fire and Sally finally took him to a doctor. He was eventually diagnosed as schizophrenic. Richard spent the next three years in a psychiatric hospital in Rockland County, New York, about 45 miles or 72 kilometers north of their home. When he would come home on occasional weekends, he started torturing animals, drinking alcohol, and smoking cigarettes. He was eight years old. Since he wasn't making any progress at the psychiatric hospital in Rockland County, Sally brought Richard to Bellevue Hospital in New York. There they confirmed that Richard suffered from child schizophrenia and they began a series of electroshock treatments. Now called electroconvulsive therapy, many people believe this treatment went the way of the lobotomy, but it's still in use today. It's believed by some to treat severe psychological disorders when conventional therapy isn't working. But others believe, like a lobotomy, the procedure only changes behavior through brain damage. Richard received electroshock treatments two or three times a week, totaling 20 sessions. Unsurprisingly, electrocuting Richard didn't seem to solve his problem, so Sally put him in a state school for boys in Warwick, New York. This facility was supposed to help troubled youth focus on their studies while giving them skills in farming and woodworking. Richard wasn't interested and attempted to escape, but was caught. On his visits home, he stole from his parents and got caught trying to break into a neighbor's house. His doctors reported that he fantasized about death, and when he was 11 years old, while visiting home, he set himself on fire. After his treatment for the burns, he seemed to calm down and was finally released back into public school when he was 16 years old. By this time, his parents had separated and it only took a few weeks for Richard to drop out of school. He traveled to Nashville, Tennessee, and it's unclear what he did there outside of stealing a car and driving it north. He was caught in Kentucky and charged with transporting stolen property across state lines. Now, back in Staten Island, Richard was looking for another thrill, and he believed robbery would fulfill that urge. Richard met another young man in prison named James Sparnroft, who went by Jimmy, and the two began planning their crime. Jimmy borrowed a 12-gauge shotgun from a friend, and he and Richard sawed off the stock in the barrel. They placed it in a bag with some ammunition, including both buckshot and slugs. On the evening of December 18, 1958, Richard was prowling the streets of Port Richmond on the north end of Staten Island. He found a cream-colored 1952 Mercury sedan and hot-wired it. 
He drove north over the Bayonne Bridge, where Jimmy was waiting for him with the bag containing the shotgun and the ammunition. As they cruised the neighborhood, they spotted a little grocery store on the corner of 46th and Avenue B. Inside, Stephen was chatting with a friend while he cleaned up the store. Richard and Jimmy parked the car and waited. Once the friend left the store, Richard got out of the car while Jimmy waited there, acting as getaway driver. Richard had the shotgun hidden underneath his coat, which was loaded with alternating rounds of buckshot and slugs. Inside the store, Stephen was putting away supplies, and when he saw the customer standing near the counter, he turned his attention to him. That's when he noticed that the young man had a shotgun. Stephen was unafraid, and he refused to give Richard money when he demanded it. Unfortunately, Richard seemed to be more interested in murder than money because he quickly shot and killed the lawyer and part-time shopkeeper. He took Stephen's wallet but didn't touch the register. Just after the shot was fired, Richard ran out of the store and jumped in the back of the stolen car. Jimmy didn't hesitate to floor it and Richard fired another shot out of the car that shattered the store's front window. The two men ditched the stolen car in Bayonne and went home on foot. Meanwhile, the woman who owned the building who lived above the store heard the shots and came outside after Richard and Jimmy had already left. She called the police who arrived and discovered Stephen's body inside the store. Upon canvassing the area, police found the abandoned car and dusted it for prints. They found a single print on the rearview mirror. Other than that, all of their canvassing and other questions turned up no evidence. The following day, Jimmy got up and went to work like he normally did. Later in the day, Richard called him and told him that they needed to get out of town. When they both got off work, they grabbed the bag of evidence and went back to Port Richmond where they stole a 1951 Oldsmobile. They headed out of Staten Island and south towards Delaware. Once through Delaware, they drove into Salisbury in Maryland. As Richard was driving through town, he didn't notice a stoplight until the last minute and had to slam on the brakes. There just happened to be a patrol officer nearby who noticed the hard stop. Officer Eldridge Heyman waited for the light to turn green and for the Oldsmobile to get a few miles down the road before he signaled for Richard to pull over. Richard complied. As Officer Heyman approached the driver's side of the vehicle, Richard fired a shot from the 12-gauge. The slug just grazed the officer's cheek, knocking him backwards. In an instant, Officer Heyman took cover and fired six shots at the car, missing Richard and Jimmy. Richard fired another shot over the car and drove off, but he wasn't familiar with the area, so he ended up getting lost. Officer Heyman called in the description of the car before he drove himself to the hospital, and Maryland State Trooper Carol Sermon spotted the car driving down a country road. He radioed in his location so other officers could set up a roadblock, and then he flipped on his lights and sirens. Richard pulled over and got out of the car, firing around toward Trooper Sermon's vehicle. The trooper took some buckshot in the leg, but was able to return fire and hit Richard in the face. Richard fell back into the car and knocked it into gear, causing it to roll into a ditch. Richard was taken to the hospital where his wounds were treated. The bullet seemed to have only damaged his left cheek. When he was interviewed by authorities, he openly admitted to his crimes and he and Jimmy were extradited to New Jersey. Both Richard Biegenwald and James Sparnroft pleaded no contest to the charge of murder. Richard was sentenced to life in prison and Jimmy was sentenced to 25 to 30 years. We'll be right back. You know what that sound is. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. 
Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibilities. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters right now. Shopify.com forward slash monsters. Now you might be thinking, wait, isn't this season about serial killers? Richard Biegenwald only killed one person. That's true, so far. After serving 17 years of a life sentence, good old Dick was released for good behavior. On June 24, 1975, at the age of 35, he was officially a free man. He reported to his parole officer once a week and lived at his mother's house on Staten Island. He got a job as a house painter and did some auto repair work. He also met a 16-year-old named Diane Marcellus, and the two began dating. Soon, the once-honor student was using a variety of drugs and even began stealing drugs after she started working at a pharmacy. In 1977, Richard picked up a young woman who was hitchhiking, and after driving for a little while, he pulled over and attacked her. She managed to get out of the car and run away. When he found out that the police had issued a warrant for his arrest for attempted rape, he fled the area. He was finally arrested three years later, and while awaiting trial, he and Diane got married in the jail, because nothing says marriage material like an attempted rape charge. While his lawyer was discussing his case with him for the first time, he told Richard that he had a unique hair color and reminded him that they would be doing a lineup the next day. The prosecutor was shocked when Richard showed up with his head completely shaved. The prosecutor tried to save his case by having all of the participants in the lineup wear wool hats, but it didn't work. The woman wasn't able to pick Richard out of a lineup and the charges were dropped. After successfully evading an attempted rape charge, Richard and Diane moved to Asbury Park, New Jersey, and invited one of Diane's friends, Teresa Smith, to live with them. They lived a seemingly quiet life for the next few years, but things weren't as ordinary as they might have seemed. On January 14, 1983, some kids were playing in a vacant lot behind the Burger King in Ocean Township, New Jersey. This was a wooded lot filled with thick brush, but as the kids played amongst the trees, they found the remains of a young woman. The body had been there for about four months and the autopsy found four gunshot wounds to the head. The identity was eventually confirmed to be 18-year-old Anna Alesowitz. Anna had gone missing on August 28th while hanging out with a friend. The friend had gone to the bathroom and when she came back, Anna was gone. When Teresa saw the news about the discovered remains, she knew she had to tell someone. By now, she had moved out of Richard and Diane's apartment and was living with her boyfriend, whose ex-wife was a corrections officer. When Teresa told her what she knew and asked for her advice, she was told that she needed to tell the police and the ex-wife helped set up an interview. On January 21st, Teresa sat down with Detective Bobby Miller and the Monmouth County prosecutor and told them her story. While living with Richard and Diane, he started taking her out in the woods and teaching her how to shoot a gun. He began telling her that he liked using small-caliber guns because the bullet would go in the skull and rattle around. 
He had some sort of fantasy about making Teresa his protege and teaching her how to kill. At the apartment, which was actually an old house that was converted into low-cost apartments, one of Richard's buddies from prison moved into one of the other apartments. His name was Darren Fitzgerald, and his unit had access to the house's basement. Richard cut a hole in the floor of his unit and put in some makeshift stairs, and the two criminals would meet in the basement where they would store weapons and plan murders. Teresa said they had supplies to make bombs and a venomous snake along with venom-extracting tools. Teresa explained that Richard and Darren were plotting to poison random people at a local mall. Teresa described how Richard would go to the shore and try to lure women with the promise of marijuana. She told them about how he would go out when he was angry and the thrill of killing would calm him down. She said he told her about this because he wanted her to participate. She explained how they had come up with a plan for her to kill her co-worker and she did hang out with the woman one night, but she couldn't go through with the murder. When Richard found out that she hadn't carried out the plan, he left the house angry. That was the evening of August 27th, the same night that Anna Olesowitz was hanging out with her friend in Asbury Park. When Anna's friend went to use the bathroom, she didn't want to use a dirty public toilet, so she walked a few blocks to her uncle's shore house and used the bathroom there. While she was gone, Richard had approached Anna and offered to smoke some weed with her. Once he got her in his car, he must have subdued her somehow because soon she was tied up inside his garage at his apartment building. In the early morning hours of August 28th, Richard woke Teresa up and told her he had a surprise for her in the garage. She told him she was tired and to leave her alone and went back to sleep. When she woke up that morning, Richard told her he still wanted to show her something in the garage, so she followed him out there. She saw Anna lying dead under an old mattress. Richard had brought her home so Teresa could kill her, but when she wouldn't get up, he just shot her himself. He eventually took her body to the vacant lot and dumped her. Detectives quickly got a warrant for the arrest of Richard and Darren and put together a plan to raid the apartments. They didn't want to initiate a shootout with two men who were clearly dangerous and, according to Teresa, well-armed. They finally settled on a ruse that would make it look like they were arresting a prowler. One officer would pretend to be a suspect being arrested near their apartments, and if he woke up and came outside, the suspect would pretend to know him to lure him outside. If he didn't come out, they could always knock on the door pretending to be canvassing the area for witnesses. We'll be right back. Let's be real, I think we can all probably up our fruit and veggie game. I spend so much time in my office that I forget to make sure I get enough fruits and veggies. This year I want to change that, and that's why I keep a freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more right to your door and it conveniently stays fresh in your freezer. I just tried the cheese harvest bowl for the first time and can't get enough. Daily Harvest takes literally minutes to prepare and never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything, and that goes for everything. I keep their flatbreads in my freezer at home because when I'm done working, if the family's already eaten and I need something quick to make, those are my go-to. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com forward slash Giles to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com forward slash Giles, J-I-L-E-S, for up to $40 off your first box. At 3 o'clock in the morning on January 22, 1983, an officer in street clothes snuck around the back of the building near where the cars parked at the apartment. 
After a minute, a uniformed officer ran up, yelling for the fake prowler to get down. When he heard the commotion, Richard got up and opened the back door to his apartment. Once he was visible, the prowler kept claiming they knew each other, calling him by name. He would say, Rich, you know me, tell him you know me. Richard took the bait and stepped outside, and when he did, he was tackled by other officers hiding around the sides of the building. He was placed in one patrol car, while Diane was placed in another. Authorities didn't know if Darren had seen them take down Richard, so they prepared for the worst as they knocked on his door. A woman answered and tried to keep the detective from coming in, despite having a warrant, but they were able to search the apartment. Along with the woman, there was a young boy in the apartment, but not Darren. Then they remembered Teresa describing a hidden room, and they found Darren hiding in the room with a rifle. He didn't start a shootout because he was afraid the boy would get hurt. Wow, a criminal with a conscience. He was placed under arrest, and the investigator began searching both apartments, including the basement. In the apartments, they found multiple homemade bombs, lighters that had been converted to shoot .22 caliber bullets, and Richard had a fully loaded MAC-10 rifle in his bedroom. In the basement, they found the supplies to make bombs and silencers. They found Rehypnol, also known as the date rape drug, and they found Chloral Hydrate, another mind-altering drug. Then they found a puff adder, one of the most venomous snakes in the world, also with the supplies to extract its venom. They found a 22 caliber handgun that would later match the gun that killed Anna. They also found a black and gold ring that Anna had been wearing when she disappeared inside Diane's jewelry box. During their immediate interviews, neither Richard or Darren said anything, but after months of investigating, trying to identify any other victims, that changed. It seemed that Darren decided that he didn't want to go down for a murder that he didn't commit and wanted to make a deal to provide additional information in exchange for dropping the murder charge. He claimed that he hadn't been involved in the murder, but did help dispose of the bodies. Plural. Darren had a criminal record, but it was all for burglary and auto theft, not for murder. So, believing his story was plausible, they agreed to a meeting. Darren began telling them that in April of 1982, Richard told him he wanted to show him something in the garage. Just like Teresa, when they went into the garage, Richard showed him the body of a dead woman lying under an old mattress. This wasn't the body of Anna Alesowitz, though, as that hadn't happened yet. This was the body of 18-year-old Deborah Osborne, who had gone missing from a bar after the friend she was with went to the bathroom. Sound familiar? Deborah had been stabbed 21 times, and Darren helped Richard dismember the body and transport it to his mother's house on Staten Island. While digging in the backyard, Darren said he uncovered the remains of another body. Richard said to him, another business deal gone south. That body belonged to 17-year-old Maria Cialella, who had disappeared on Halloween night in 1981, not far from where Deborah had vanished. Darren didn't know any details about that murder as it happened during a time while he was locked up on another burglary charge. The investigators were floored by the claim of two more bodies, but Darren wasn't done. He told investigators about a man named William Ward. William was someone he met in prison, and when they were both on the outside, they began to work together, along with Richard, running guns up and down the East Coast. In late September of 1982, he and William got into an argument, and it turned physical. They crashed through the screen door and were fighting in the backyard when Richard came out with a gun with a silencer on it and shot William five times in the head. 
Darren confessed that the two of them quickly pulled the body into the garage, and then he helped take William's body and buried it in a cemetery. Then he said he could take them to the location of another buried body in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. He didn't know the identity of the woman, but it would be revealed to be 17-year-old Betsy Bacon, who went missing on November 20, 1982. She had left her house at about 11 p.m. and never returned. Since Richard operated alone when he went out to kill, how he met most of the people he killed is a mystery. After searching the woods in the area Darren described, they found the remains covered in a thin layer of debris. In the cemetery, Darren pointed out exactly where William Ward was buried and his body was recovered. It took some time to get additional search warrants since Richard's mother lived in New York State, but they eventually went to her home and dug up the backyard. They found two bodies buried in the same shallow grave. They dug up the entire backyard but didn't find any additional bodies. They did receive information that led them to believe that Richard had killed a man named John Patrone in 1978. John was a low-level criminal who was also a police informant. Richard and John had gotten into a beef, but Richard pretended to make up with John and then took him out to an abandoned airport where they did some target shooting. When John wasn't looking, Richard put his gun to John's head and pulled the trigger. Then he shot him several more times in the head. His skeletal remains were eventually found in a wooded area, and his identity was confirmed through dental records. The remains of 17-year-old Virginia Clayton were found not far from where John's remains were found, and authorities believe she was another victim of Richard's, but there's no evidence connecting him to the murder. Darren Fitzgerald was offered a sentence of 10 years for assisting with the disposal of the bodies under the condition he testify against Richard. Richard Beganwald was charged with five counts of first-degree murder, and despite the defense trying to discredit both Darren and Teresa, their testimonies were damning. The jury didn't take long to find Richard guilty of all five murders, as well as some gun possession and drug charges. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty, so they moved on to that phase of the trial. It only took the jury six and a half hours to unanimously agree to the death penalty. There was a separate trial for the murder of William Ward, and the jury also found Richard guilty of murder. But they couldn't reach an agreement on the death penalty, so he was sentenced to life in prison. Then Richard had to go on trial in New York for the murder charges and the deaths of Maria Chialella and Deborah Osborne. There, Richard pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison for each murder. Over the years, Richard appealed his conviction and was given a new sentencing trial once where he again received the death penalty. Then, in 1991, the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled that there was an error during the jury selection and he was given a third sentencing trial. This time the jury was not able to come to a unanimous decision, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Even if he did get parole, which was unlikely, he would then have to serve another life sentence in New Jersey and two 30-year sentences in New York. To top it off, in 1993, Richard pleaded guilty to the murder of Betsy Bacon. It was guaranteed that Richard would never see the outside of a prison. And he didn't. Richard Beganwald died on March 10, 2008, due to respiratory failure and kidney failure. He was 67 years old. After his death, his lawyer told people that Richard told him that he may have killed as many as 100 people. That claim is likely inflated, but there are definitely more people out there who died at the hands of Richard Beganwald than we'll ever know about. The lawyer said that Richard told him that he liked to hire prostitutes and test out his homemade firearms on them. He mentioned dumping their bodies in dumpsters and wooded areas. 
With a monster like him, it's unlikely that he only killed eight people, but we'll never know for sure. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on Like the Irish weather Predictably unpredictable When you're cutting it fine But the tractor in front is out for the day No winner of this week's You know what So much for lucky seven But some things you can depend on Like in home heating Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil Are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home Now and into the future For home heating you can depend on See CertaIreland.ie did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Done stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. It's flu season, and children are twice as likely as adults to catch the flu, which can sometimes cause serious illness. That's why all children aged 2 to 17 can get their free nasal spray flu vaccine, a safe and effective way to protect them and the rest of your family too. So make an appointment with your GP or pharmacist. Visit hsc.ie forward slash flu for more information from the HSC.